I suspect that probably all of us have watched countless scenes where we find a hero who's surrounded by a gang of thugs. The hero's always outnumbered. You know, sometimes it's six to one or eight to one or ten to one. It, the, the more extreme the number, it seems like the, the more action we expect in the movie. It, it doesn't matter, though, because our hero, no matter how many people are standing around him, he just stands there fearless. He is not the least bit concerned. He, he probably even smiles if, if one of the thugs pulls out a knife or something. He just gives that little smirk of disdain as, as he, he knows this is all going to be his time. We, we know how the scene will end. The, the thugs will end up lying on the ground and the hero will swagger away to do whatever it was the, the thugs were trying to prevent when they, they approached. The, the problem I have with these scenes is that, that we know that the, the hero overcoming all such odds is fictitious. I'm no hero, and neither are you. It would take a lot less than six to one to cause me harm if they were intent to do so. And I think that's true for all of you. I'd be the one moaning on the ground, not the thugs. That, that's consuming, uh, or assuming I'm still capable of moaning after they're done with me. I may not even be doing that much by that point. And I really don't think you guys are that much different. The, the fictional would smash up against reality very quickly when I face those kind of odds. Well, the other problem I have with these scenes is that if, if we happen to find thugs as, as those who are opposed to righteousness, then all of us are truly surrounded by a lot worse than 10 to 1 odds. We are surrounded. We live in a world. We, we live in a country. We live in a state. We live in cities that are filled with unrighteous people. As, and as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, they're not only those who practice unrighteousness, but they give hearty approval to others who will do likewise. They're all around us. The, the people they hate, these unrighteous people, are you and I. Because if we're standing for Christ, we are their enemy. We resist unrighteousness because we know that Christ calls us to live righteously. The calling of our Savior turns unrighteous people into thugs who often become our real-life foes. So this image that, that we see in these movies of the hero surrounded by, by thugs seeking the harm, that, that really is not a stretch. Yet there's no way, as I said, we can stand be for them with, with disdain, expecting to, to beat them up in a fight, we're going to lose in that kind of battle. At the same time, as we see this evening, we should still, as believers, nonetheless stand fearless before our foes. As I mentioned last week, the plan I had this week was to examine Psalm 27. You can see that listed on the, the screen. Psalm 27 is uh, the other psalm after Psalm 26 that I had not preached through personally when we went through the first book of the Psalter back in 2016. So I've been looking for an opportunity to study these two psalms since that time. Like the psalm we covered last week, Psalm 26, Psalm 27 is attributed to David. Similar to that one, we, we don't have enough information in the psalm to connect David to this psalm in any particular time frame of his life. He, he writes about something going on in his life here, but we don't know what that might be. 
the, the best we can do when we look at this psalm is, is suggest that maybe David wrote this psalm after he was king. There, there's a lot of military expressions in the psalm that, that seem to suggest that his foes might be uh, enemies that are at war with him. That, that is more of a setting a king might endure. But even if we assume David's the king at this time, that doesn't narrow the events down very much. David was king for a long time. And if you look at the Old Testament of David's kingship, he really was surrounded by foes pretty much his entire time. So really, this psalm is general. It could come at pretty much any time in his life. In a moment, as we read the psalm, we'll, we'll see that David is, as I suggested, surrounded by foes. And yet David is fearless. Why? Why can David stand before all these foes, he can be in the face of all these foes and, and remain fearless? And what can we learn from him? What we can learn is that the Lord enables us to remain fearless before foes of righteousness. The Lord. He enables us to remain fearless, even though there's all kinds of foes of righteousness all around us. David's secret is the Lord. His knowledge of the Lord, his confidence in the Lord, that's what allows David to be fearless. We really need to learn what David knows because we can have the same. The Lord enables us to remain fearless before foes of righteousness. This psalm is a little bit unusual as far as the structure of psalms go. A few scholars even argue that this psalm is actually two separate psalms. Now, I don't think they're right about that. I think it's one psalm as we have it in our, in our Bibles. But it's, there's clearly two separate parts. The, the first six verses of the psalm are filled with praise and thanksgiving. The, the latter verses are a lament. Uh, a lament is, is a prayer, a call to God for, for help. Both sections work together, though, and they, they work together to teach us an important point that allows us to remain fearless in the face of foes of righteousness. They, they teach us that we need to depend on the Lord. That's the secret, depending on the Lord. We'll, we'll look at each section separately this evening, but they both teach us the same thing. We need to depend on the Lord. The Lord enables us to remain fearless before foes of righteousness. In the first six verses, the, the first section here, as we think about this idea of fearlessness, we, we see in the first six verses that fearlessness comes from rejoicing in our knowledge of the Lord. It comes from rejoicing in the knowledge of the Lord. Let's read these verses. David writes here, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though a war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the days of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. 
I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Fearlessness comes from rejoicing in our knowledge of the Lord. Our knowledge of the Lord begins with recognizing, number one, first of all, that the Lord is greater than our foes. The Lord's greater than our foes. David points it out very well in the first verse, which is rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions, remember, imply the answer, but they're used as a device to, to make us answer along with the, the questioner. So he uses these to assert his complete trust in the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The obvious answer is no one. The Lord is his defense. Why can he say that? Well, because compared to the Lord, there is no one to fear. There is no one to dread. It doesn't matter if the foes resemble wild animals who are trying to devour him. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter if they represent an entire army encamped. It doesn't matter if they launch attack after attack. If they're waging all-out war, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because he says they will stumble and fall. It doesn't matter because the Lord is greater. It's David's knowledge here of the Lord's greatness that allows him to, to face his enemies with fearlessness. He knows that no matter what they look like, his Lord is greater the Lord, as he says in verse 1, is the defense of his life. That The word that he uses frequently in that verse is oftentimes in, in the Psalms translated as stronghold. The Lord is his stronghold. That, that's a very familiar image in the Psalms. It, it's use of God and points to the fact that God provides a place, a refuge, a place to, to go and hide out where, where no one can attack. God is the strength of his people. David is confident he's one of those people. He, he's one who knows that God is his stronghold. Sure, the foes may be mighty. They, they may be numerous. Yet David looks here at the greatness of the Lord, and when he looks at the greatness of the Lord and considers that, the foes become reduced to just insignificance. It's a matter of comparison. So the question we need to ask ourselves, what are we looking at? When we're surrounded by all this unrighteousness and all these foes that are trying to, to uh, oppress us, what are we looking at? Are, are we looking at the greatness of God? Or are we looking at our foes? Our foes may rattle their sabers. They, they may threaten us with things like lawsuits and fines for standing on righteous morals. They, they may mount social blitzes against us. They, they may scream on blog after blog about how our views of righteousness are outdated and, and that we will find ourselves on the wrong side of history. That's one of the, the, the phrases you'll hear. But So what? Are we looking at them or are we looking at God? Our foes may rally outside the walls. Someday they may even physically oppose our assembly. When we try to gather, we may have to have people that, that keep them at bay because they're trying to keep us from gathering. They may put us in prison. They may do all kinds of things, but what they cannot do is affect the greatness of our God. Our foes may make all kinds of noise, but their strength is a mirage. God is great. God's strength is real. Are we looking 
to him for our security? Are we looking to him for our guidance? Are we gazing fretfully at these foes that surround us? The bottom line question is whether we know God sufficiently to, to comprehend his greatness and his strength. If we know God and we know him well, then we know that our Lord is greater than our foes. Fearlessness comes from rejoicing in our knowledge of the Lord. The Lord is greater than our foes. David is demonstrating that here in the first three verses. He's greater than our foes. David follows up in verses 4 through 6 with another truth. If, if the truth of verses 1 through 3, if the truth of God's greatness is real, if we know that, if we understand His greatness, then that also means that we should praise the Lord's greatness. If He's great, we should praise Him. Look at verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. The opening line there of that verse, that's an amazing statement of trust. I'm not sure if there's any other line that, that quite reaches that height of trust anywhere in Scripture. One thing I've asked of the Lord, this is exclusive. I only want one thing Based on the Lord's greatness, based on who he is, based on what I know of him, his greatness, David has a single request. Let me go to the house of the Lord and praise him. There's no room for fear when he comprehends God's greatness. There's only room for praise. And the proper place for praise is among God's people. That's why he wants to go to the house of the Lord. That's where he'll find other worshipers. In order to understand what David is saying here, we need to understand a couple of things about his context. One, when, when David refers to beholding the beauty of the Lord, we need to remember that the tabernacle of David's day, where he wants to go, this place he's trying to get to, the place of worship, the tabernacle of his day was the visible expression of God's presence. Re remember the Shekinah glory filled the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. God physically and visibly manifested his glory to Israel in a unique way there above the Ark of the Covenant. That, that's why a godly person like David would want to go there where God is visibly manifesting his presence. He'd want to go that place. It was a, new, a new, unique way they had to be in the presence of the Lord. There, David felt safe. He felt secure. He knew that the unrighteous could not touch him there because they could not come into the presence of the Lord. No unrighteous can come before the Lord. Second, notice that, that David also anticipated offering sacrifices and singing praises in the tabernacle. As I said, that's the place of public worship in his day. The tabernacle where, was where the worshipers gathered before God and they worshiped through sacrifices and songs of praise. David understood that it was insufficient to praise God in the privacy of his palace in Jerusalem. Sure, David had a nice palace. He could sing praises to God there. But God's greatness deserved public proclamation. There should be, if David says here, shouts of joy in verse 6 as God is praised. David anticipates the victory that God will give him in and he uses now in verse 6 as, as if it's already done. Even though there's foes all around him, David knows the victory is already God's. So he assumes it's already happened, and he cannot wait 
to express his devotion in praise where everyone can hear it. We need to remember praising God for his greatness is a key to developing fearlessness. In, in the face of all the foes of unrighteousness around us, if we praise God, it will aid in our fearlessness. Hearing others praise God reminds us that, that of what we know about God. Letting them hear us reminds them, letting us reinforce it. Praising God's greatness cements that ultimate reality in our minds. And the ultimate reason for our fearlessness is all we know about God. Reminds us God is great. Period. Hard stop. He alone is great. None of these folks. God has designed it that, that we believers live in community with one another. We, we are not to live in isolation. Just think about, let me give you a simple example. In the past um, couple of months, we heard four different testimonies during our DIY services in June and in, in July. Testimonies that had one thing in common. God saved individuals who had no possible way of saving themselves. All four testimonies were testimonies of salvation. God saved individuals who had no possible way to be saved aside from God. In fact, in most of the cases, it seemed from an external assessment, if we just step back and look at the probabilities of things, these were unlikely people to be saved by God. These were first-generation believers. They, they were surrounded by unrighteousness. Families that historically had not known the saving grace of God. But God moved. His greatness was displayed. He saved the unsavable. Let me ask you, did hearing about God's work excite you? It sure did me. It was also obvious that, that while some of the individuals who, who shared, if you think back to these testimonies we had, if they were standing up, up here, yeah, they were up here, if they were standing here, it was obvious that some of the people were nervous to be here in front of others as far as nervous to, to stand up front. But every single one of them showed excitement about sharing what God had done. As they focused on God, the excitement built because God's greatness deserves praise. We need to shout his greatness to others. We need to shout so that they will shout their praise along with us. Shouting God's greatness, it, it drives fear out of his people. We should praise the Lord for his greatness. Fearlessness comes from rejoicing in our knowledge of the Lord. We should praise the Lord for his greatness. We should shout it so that all can hear how great our Lord is. Remember the main idea we get from this psalm. The, the Lord enables us to remain fearless before foes of righteousness. We're surrounded by these foes of righteousness. There are people everywhere we look who hate righteousness. But we can remain fearless before them. Fearlessness comes from rejoicing in our knowledge of the Lord. We need to know and praise our Lord. That's what the first six verses of the psalm that David has for us, that's what they teach us. That's what they show us. We need to know God and then praise him for what we know. The rest of, us, of the psalm here, as we keep going, shows us that not only is there a place for praise, there's also a place for prayer. We need to be in fervent prayer as well. 
because fearlessness comes from calling on the strength of our Lord. Let's go ahead and read the second part of the psalm, verses 7 through 14. Fearlessness comes from calling on the strength of our Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. David here, he's moving from praise to prayer. Hear, O Lord, as I cry to you. As I cry out, this is fervent prayer. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a path, in, in a level path, because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Fearlessness comes from calling on the Lord. We, we can break these final verses into two sections just like we did the first uh, part of the psalm. In, in verses 7 through 12, the, the first section here of this part, um, the point to recognize is that the Lord will deliver us from our foes. Hear, O Lord, be gracious to me, answer me. The Lord will deliver us from our foes. These words, hear, be gracious, answer. These are words that we find frequently again in the Psalms, just like we find the word stronghold. We find these words a lot of times in Psalms of laments. They're, they're the, the entry cries and petitions that we find over and over. Hear me, God. Answer me. Be gracious to me. I appeal for God to act. Lament Psalms, as I said, they cry out to God because of great need. Usually it's hardship. Usually it's oppression from, from sinful people. And, and the psalmist cries out to God. Well, in our psalm, the, the reason David is crying out to God is because he needs deliverance from his foes. His knowledge that he expressed at the, the beginning of the psalm, the praise that he's given God, that hasn't changed the reality that there's still foes out there that he needs deliverance from. Recognizing the greatness of God may build fearlessness, but fearlessness alone doesn't take the problem away. David needs God in his greatness to do something. And now I will mention in passing that the Hebrew verse 8 is difficult to translate. If you spent time comparing English versions, you would find there's differences in, in how the verse is handled. There's, there's some grammatical things that are difficult to translate. But the idea is, is one of seeking God. That, that is clear. Exactly how David expresses his seeking of God, that's the unclear part. But the idea is not unclear. David knows that he needs to seek God for deliverance. He also knows that, that he has very good reason to anticipate that God will deliver him. God has delivered him before. Verse 9, you, God, you have been my help. God hides himself from his children when he's angry with them, but, but God does not hide his presence from those who are seeking him. Rather, God shows himself to be the God of salvation. 
In fact, David is so confident of, of this aspect of God that he expresses a comparison between God and his parents here there in verse 10. For my father and mother have forsaken me, in verse 10, but, but the Lord will take me up. That, that's the way the New American translates it. And the way the New American Standard translates it, it almost sounds like David's been abandoned by his parents. Now, historically, we have no record of that ever happening, that David was ever abandoned by his parents. And it seems completely contrary to the little bit of record we have of his father, Jesse. It seem, doesn't seem like Jesse would be one to abandon his, his son. But we don't have to take the Hebrew of this verse in that fashion. We don't have to take it, David saying he has been abandoned. He's simply setting up a comparison between the two. The, the New Living Translation, that, that version we're using for our psalm reading in the morning, that, that expresses the idea in a more looser fashion of the Hebrew. It expresses that even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. It's an it's a element of comparison. That the point is that no matter what happens, even with the closest of human relationship, the most dependable humans that we should have, our parents, even if they were to abandon us, God will not fail to deliver his children. This is especially true for David, the, the divinely chosen king of Israel. David calls for the Lord not to abandon him. But he only asks God to directly do one thing for him. David says, you know, he's begging God not to abandon him, but he only really asks directly for one thing, and that's found in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. That's the only thing David directly asks him to, to God to do for David. Teach me your way. This is a request that God would guide David in his life. Notice throughout this psalm, if you happen to glance back over it, David's been using the covenant name for God. We, we can see that with capital L-O-R-D in our English Bibles. That, that represents the, the Hebrew Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, the, the four-letter name by which God revealed himself as the covenant God of, of Israel. So David's been addressing his covenant God by the covenant name. So a request for guidance here from that God that David knows has a covenant relationship with him means that, that David is asking that God would show him how to keep the covenant. That's what teach me your way, O Lord, implies. Show me how to obey the covenant. We, we need to remember that in the Old Testament, a path for blessing a an Old Testament believer, was through covenant obedience. You know, a level path, as he refers to there in verse 11, the picture he has of a level path. A level path is the path that is found by obedience. Obedience that, that would lead the nation of Israel to prosperity and safety. David wants God to deliver him. But he recognizes that he, David, must do his part to demonstrate his faith in his covenant God, through obedience. The unrighteous are, are trying to draw David away from the path of obedience. They're trying to draw him to unrighteousness. They're, they're willing to use lies, according to verse 12. They're willing to use violence to achieve their goal. David needs God to guide him to obedience. Obedience is what assures David that the Lord will deliver him from his foes. Here's where we always need to use caution when, when we apply Old Testament passages to ourselves. 
our covenant relationship with God is different than David's. David was in this covenant relationship with God through the Mosaic Covenant. That, that was covenant that promised direct physical and temporal blessings for the nation of Israel upon obedience. David, as the king of Israel, could call on God to fulfill those temporal promises whenever he was leading the nation in covenant obedience. When he was drawing the nation to obey the, the covenant with God, he could expect that God would give them the temporal blessings God had promised to give. Well, we're related to God through the new covenant, not the Mosaic covenant. The, the corporate promises that, that we participate in is our union through the new covenant are spiritual blessings, not temporal blessings. We participate in these promises through the faith of the ultimate covenant fulfiller, Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the covenant stipulations. We benefit from the blessings, but they're spiritual blessings. The, the principle that, that we display our faith through obedience, though, remains valid. How do we know we're part of that covenant? We obey the obligations that are given. The promises that God will enable us to stand against the unrighteous without wavering in our faith, those promises are still contingent on our obedience as well. There's parallels between the Mosaic Covenant and, and the New Covenant in that fashion. We show that we're united to the covenant by obedience, and we will stand unwavering through obedience. That's the same in both covenants. The implication is then that we too need to ask God to guide us to, using David's words, a level place, a, 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 a stable path. We need to pray for God's guidance. We need to call out to God for deliverance. When, when we focus then on obedience, having called out for deliverance, we can be confident that God will deliver us from our foes. That deliverance may not mean removal from the oppression, there may be oppression from the unrighteous, but will mean deliverance will always mean that we will fearlessly stand firm in our faith. We will be on the level, so to speak. Our faith will not waver. We will experience the spiritual blessings promised through the new covenant, secure that God has saved us. Fearlessness comes from calling on the strength of the Lord. The Lord will deliver us from our foes. That's what we learn through verses 7 through 12. They, they teach us that point. The Lord will deliver us from our foes. He'll deliver us from the foes of righteousness. The final two verses of the, the psalm, they, they close by reminding us until we get to that point, until that time comes where we're delivered, which may not be in this life, but we will be delivered, until that time, we must wait. We must wait for the Lord's deliverance. That's what we find in verses 13 and 14. We must wait. Waiting is hard, isn't it? Any of you like waiting? It's hard to wait for something we want really, really bad. Our family experienced that this week. On Wednesday morning, my daughter-in-law was induced, and we started waiting for her to deliver our granddaughter. Well, when Grace and I went to bed Wednesday night, we were still waiting. I know neither Grace or I got a whole lot of sleep that night. I know that because I caught her checking her phone in the middle of the night a couple times when I was looking to check my phone for the same reason. We wanted to hear. Well, Harper, our granddaughter, was finally born at 4.30 on Thursday morning. But we didn't hear about it until closer to 6 because they wanted to let us sleep or something. I don't know. They didn't tell us till 6 o'clock. That's a lot of waiting. 
That's a long time to wait. And since then, we've been waiting for pictures. I almost was late tonight because we're waiting for a video call, and she was slow eating, so we had to, to wait a little bit longer, but we got here, and we got the call in, so we got to see her. Now, let me ask you, are you surprised I managed to fit my granddaughter into the sermon somehow tonight? <laughs> Waiting is hard, isn't it? It's hard. Waiting is hard for us, but it also was hard for David. In fact, it was so hard for David, he implies that he would have failed to wait in fearlessness unless he was absolutely convinced that he would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In other words, he would have lost hope when he looked for all the foes surrounding him. And when he saw all the people lined up against him, he would have lost all hope were not for the fact he was convinced in his heart that God would deliver him. So regardless of how frightening the thugs looked that were surrounding him, he was convinced that God would enable him to walk away rather than end up lying on the ground beaten to a pulp. Because of God, David could wait. In fact, not only was David able to wait because he was convinced that God would do what he had promised to do, David was also able to call others to follow his example. Wait for the Lord, he encourages. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. In other words, review everything that David has shared about the Lord. Look at David's own confidence in the Lord. Observe how he is waiting in fearlessness and do likewise. That's what the last verse is telling us. Learn from him. Follow his example. Folks, we need to wait fearlessly for the Lord. We, we must wait because we ourselves are confident in God's greatness. We must wait because we're confident in God's faithfulness. We must wait because we know we are in a covenant relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ, the covenant fulfiller. We must also wait because others are watching us. Our confidence can and will serve to build courage and confidence in others. We're not the only ones surrounded by the foes of righteousness. So are the others who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They're just as surrounded as we are. One of the things our foes tried to do is, is try to isolate us, make us feel like we're all alone that we are the only ones struggling with whatever it is that the oppression is bringing upon us. Yet the truth of the matter is, if the author of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 11, we are surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses. Men and women throughout the centuries have stood courageously, waiting in confidence for the Lord's deliverance from the foes of, of righteousness. We can take courage from them. After all, that's why that chapter is there, enlisting them all. We're to take courage from those we've seen before. We are to wait for the Lord's deliverance. And because we can see others have done the same, and God has not failed them. We can take courage from them. So we are not alone. Courage from others to, to wait for the Lord's deliverance. At the same time, we need to recognize we are not alone. Others are watching us too. We have many we can watch, but others are watching us to see if our confidence is real. Are we really as fearless as we appear? 
We need to wait for the Lord's deliverance so that we can inspire, inspire courage in others rather than inspiring fear. We need to do our part to pass along the, the standard of, of waiting in fearlessness for God to deliver the righteous from their foes. As one commentator put it, redemptive history continues as long as God's people wait for the Lord and do His will. We're called to serve God by playing our part in redemptive history, waiting on the Lord. We're called to serve that part because we have faith in the Redeemer of history. That means we must wait for the Lord's deliverance. Fear is not an option. We must wait for the Lord's deliverance. We must wait. Fearlessness comes from calling on the strength of the Lord. We must wait for the Lord's deliverance. The Lord enables us to, to remain fearless before foes. That's what David is teaching us. The Lord enables us to remain fearless before foes. That's what Psalm 27 is crying out, a, a lesson that, that's learned through David's own experience here of waiting for, in the face of foes himself. A lesson that we need to learn because we're surrounded by foes, foes of righteousness. The Lord enable us, enables us to remain fearless in the, the face of all these foes. Fearlessness comes from rejoicing in the knowledge of our Lord. We saw that in, in the first part of the psalm and then in the second part after verses 1 through 6, begin verse 7, we see that fearlessness comes from calling on the strength of the Lord. We praise and we pray. Praise and prayer combine to create fearlessness because both take us to the Lord. And the Lord is the one who enables us to remain fearless before the foes of righteousness. As we conclude tonight, let me ask, are you fearless before the foes of righteousness that surround you? There are foes in our culture. There are foes in most of our families, people that ridicule our faith in Christ. Many of us have foes at work. Some of us have foes from our past. There are many foes. People who are unrighteous and who want us to join them in their unrighteousness. Let's be real. Some of these foes are nice people. Yet some of them, yes, you know, some are easily identifiable, but some are simply nice people. There are those who clearly just want to knock us down for our righteousness, but some are nice. They'll knock us down, but they do it in the nicest of ways simply luring us to join them in their, their unrighteous viewpoints. Their views may sound so reasonable, but they're unrighteous if they do not line up with Scripture. This last week, I, I, I read a book. I mentioned this morning this class that I'm auditing. I read a book on transgenderism. This book was filled by, by heartfelt pleas, and they really were heartfelt pleas for love and compassion by a parent who had a child who, who did not feel that the internal person matched up to their physical person. In other words, they thought they were in the wrong gender. And the parent's driving principle through this whole book was summed up by, the child's joy was my beacon. Well, who doesn't want a child to have joy? The parent concluded that somehow I had to remake the world in my child's image. There's where we move into the unrighteousness. The child's image is that of the image bearer. 
is that of image bearer. There is one who has the image. That's God. We bear his image, and God has made man male and female. So while there's these wonderful pleas for love and compassion, from the nicest of parent, probably, is still unrighteousness. It's still a foe of righteousness. And we must stand fearlessly in the face of foes of righteousness. Whether the foe is blatant or bl- and blur- bl- belligerent, can't get my words out, or gentle and beguiling, either way, we need to stand fearlessly against them. Are you? Are you fearless? The Lord enables us to remain fearless before foes of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would enable us to be men and women who stand fearlessly before the, those who are against your righteousness, those who ignore it, rebel against it, and, and try to get us to do likewise. Father, we know some of them may threaten us outwardly and some may threaten us in a much more beguiling fashion, but Father, we know they all stand against you if they do not stand in faith with Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to learn the lesson that David learned, that we can be fearless because of our God. And may we be bold. May we be bold by praising you and and leaning on your strength so that we magnify Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.